RadioInfluence.com. You've seen Chef Ryan Duffy on Spike TV's Bar Rescue, NBC's Today Show, and opening bars and restaurants all over the world. Now he's sharing his stories, his friends, and some tips of the trade he's learned along the way. Prepare yourself to get Duffified. This is Duffified Live with Chef Ryan Duffy on Radio Influence. Hey, Friday morning. Guess what? It's Duffified Live Day. So happy to have you guys all out here with us. It's a big, uh, big fun week for me over the last week. Um, about three weeks ago, I made a pretty big decision that I was going to open another restaurant this time in my backyard. So about three quarters of a mile from where I live is a pretty cool new little restaurant that I opened up. It's called Ardmore Q. Okay, there you go. Y'all know now I live in a tiny little town in the outskirts of Philadelphia called Ardmore. And I wanted to do something for this town because I love it. I love living here. I was born and raised about, you know, three miles away from here. And I've lived here for for more than half of my life. Um, I moved into Ardmore when I was about 18. And there's a super cool little spot that has been there for the last seven years. And it was owned by a guy named Guy. And I, I enjoyed, I've always enjoyed Guy. Guy's an Italian dude, super fun, over the top, classic Philly, um, who opened up a barbecue spot called Barbacoa. Well, about two years ago, Guy unfortunately got that horrible fucking news that is called the word of cancer and guy's partner made some pretty bad decisions and the business just didn't succeed the way that he wanted it to. So guy actually shut the business down. He did some renovations on the property, made some adjustments to the, to the recipes that he was doing. And he opened up a place called the Ardmore Q. So a couple of weeks ago, I walked in and guy and I started talking and the decision was made to kind of purchase this, this property, this business. So that's what we did. So the name of the restaurant is Ardmore Q. I'm not changing the name because I like it. I really like the homage to the city and Q, man, we're talking about barbecue, all different aspects of it. I'm kind of doing a whole combination of my travels throughout the country. I'm really kind of recreating some of my favorite places and things that I really like. It's more of a Texas style of barbecue, a little bit more on that dry rub side. The sauces are kind of an accoutrement in addition to it, but it's down and dirty and that's what I like. Um, It's fun. It's loud. It's vibrant. It's bright. Um, My big thing is all about the meat. And it's all about the music, which is kind of weird because this week on the episode that I have, I'm actually going to be talking about meat again. And I'm not talking about barbecue this time, though. We're talking about some steaks, talking about burgers. We're talking about the importance of meat. But at the same time, we're going to have some pretty cool conversations about a couple different things. My guest for this week is a gentleman named Nick Solaris, who I have actually researched uh, by by, by, uh, not, not even intentionally. I researched him because I was opening a steak concept and I wanted to do a lot of research about meat. I wanted to know who had the best steaks. I wanted to know why they were the best steaks. I wanted to know how the product was raised, what makes the greatest beef, what makes the greatest steak, what makes the greatest burger. So my conversation with Nick is really going to be all about that. But the way that we actually came to be able to to meet each other was I was up at a buddy of ours, a a, a mutual friend of ours, Carl Ruiz. He's been on the show. Um, I was up at his place like two weeks ago, I guess, three weeks ago. Uh, just did a stop by. I was in New York for a, a really quick hour doing some Food Network stuff. And and uh, I, I wanted to have an opportunity to go over and check out Carl's Kitchen. Well, while I was there, uh, in walks Nick Solaris. 
didn't recognize him. I knew he looked familiar, but I wasn't sure. He started to talk. It all started to click. Finally, we make that connection. And now that's my guest for this week. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to do me a huge favor. Um, I want you to put your hands together. I want you to turn the radio up. I do more cursing than Nick does because of the fact, I don't know, I guess it's just my nature. But you guys know that I curse a little bit. So make sure that your kids are out of the room. So, ladies and gentlemen, do me a massive favor and welcome to the show for this week, the host of Meat Life. We're talking about Nick Solaris. What's up, Nick Solaris? Hello, sir. How are you? Pretty awesome, man. I'm pretty awesome. I I, uh, I want you to know that this is an honor for me because I have followed let me, you. Let me stop you right there. The honor is all mine. Okay. <laughs> You're English, so, correct? No, I'm from England, um, but I, I'm a New Yorker. I've been, I've been living here since 1985. All right. So I take that from the heart with a little bit of sarcasm then. Well, <laughs> exactly. I have a bad attitude, and uh, I, I, unfortunately, I only exemplify the worst aspects of London and, and New York. <laughs> I have a snotty bad attitude, but I try not to. I'm, I'm gonna- well, well, it was uh, it was not only a full blown surprise to figure out who you were while we were sitting in in the kitchen at La Cubana, but uh, it was a true honor, man. I looked over and I'm like, man, I fucking know who this guy is. I don't know where, I don't know how, but I know who this guy is between your voice and your look and the whole nine yards. But you were taking pictures. Yeah, yeah. But you were taking pictures and I'm like, I I, I don't know. I'm like, I I know who this guy is. Oh, that's right. Because I was doing the photo shoot that day. Yeah. Yeah, yes, which was me, a lot of like people don't like really my job has been for the last 15 years been as a food writer and part and parcel to being a food writer in the 21st century in the digital age is you need a, you need photography right so oh, that's also been part of my job is that it really and it's probably at least a third of my job is taking pictures um but of course nobody sees me when you're behind the camera so right um now, what kind of camera was that that was a Leica, which is a, uh, a ridiculously expensive uh, German camera. But, you know, amongst like photographiles or whatever the hell the term for photo enthusiasts is, um, right. it's it's really one of the like, it's like a legendary brand. But it's also, it's one of those things that it's a legendary brand, but it's also a technologically a very advanced product and ironically uses one of the oldest focusing systems, but still the best. Um, but it's one of these cameras that is sort of still handmade in Germany. They cost like multiples of thousands of dollars. Really? But they're all, I mean, it's exquisitely made. It's like a fine watch. The lenses themselves, some of them, like the glass in the lens takes a year to cool. Like it's so exacting, you know, it's all made by hand and it's, 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 they're like jewels, right? <laughs> the, the, the way that you take photos with a Leica is a little different than other cameras because you're looking through a viewfinder that actually looks into the real world rather than looking through the lens. Right. And that sort of gives you, and you'll also look beyond the lens itself. So you're looking at the whole world. And then within that, there's a frame line that shows you the image. <laughs> so it's a, it's a different way of photographing. Um, right. But again, it, to me, it's it's almost like worrying about what knife the chef used. It doesn't matter. The what matters is the outcome. And sure. the the reason I use that camera is because it speaks to me on a. It's very uh, tactile. Okay. So you you change the aperture, which is how much light goes into the lens, which gives you the depth of field effect by hand. You cho- right. you choose the shutter speed by hand. They're all dials and knobs. So it's all very old school analog photography, even though it's digital. Oh wow. And what what I love about that is that it's very 
you don't need to look at the camera. You're not looking through menus. It's not an iPhone. It's the opposite. Imagine the opposite of an iPhone. That's what yeah. using a maker is like. Um, okay. There's a very con- there's a real connection with it, but at the same time, it's something I would never recommend somebody get into because the cameras are very expensive. Um, it's just learning how to focus with a Leica is a skill, and that takes right. years to develop really well. Oh, and wow. I still, frankly, I've been I've been shooting them for twelve years. I still haven't really mastered it, in my opinion. Uh, all right, have, so, uh, what are we talking about? <laughs> cameras. <for? laughs> I have a D90 downstairs that I bought to do a whole bunch of food photography, and it's been downstairs for roughly six years now. Well, I'll tell you uh, something. First of all, great cameras. Nikon, um, all modern cameras are superb. Right. What we're experiencing now is that the iPhone and the new Android for cameras are so good. Oh, yeah. That I will admit that on occasion... When uh, during my last job, which we'll we'll talk about, I actually use a couple of iPhone pictures in my reviews. Oh wow! Now it has to be per- now it has to be perfectly lit. It, you of know, course, they they fall apart in in poor light. Um, you know, there's, there's the old adage: the best camera is the one that you have with you. And we have our ca- our phones with us all the time. All so, the time. You know, and whether it's I mean, well, hold on, let's do this real quick. Who, who are you? And what do you do? And how do we get? Why am I? I have no idea. Uh, (laughs) It's uh, it's early in the morning. No, Uh, my name is Nick Solaris. I am. I mean, principally, I'm a food writer. But as you know, that you're not just a chef. You're fifty thousand other things. And you know, I'm a food writer. I'm a photographer. And what happened to me, you know, several years ago is that I I was uh, given the opportunity to do a video series called The Meat Show for. for Eater on YouTube. And that sort of completely changed the trajectory of my career because suddenly I became sort of a personality. People knew me on the food scene. So when I walk into like barbecue restaurant, I mean, you experience this on a, on a much bigger level than I do, being that you're on actual real television. Um, but it sort of, it may kind of made me a personality for lack of it. I mean, it sounds awful to say that. No, but it's the truth. But, you know, it's like, so now I've become, I do, I now I have my I have a new show that I'm launching, which we'll talk about, which is what I'm promoting, I guess. Um, but then I also do like I, I host a lot of dinners and I host events and I do lectures and I talk to industry groups and I talk to consumers. Um, so I've sort of be, I've sort of parlayed a career of food writing and food journalism. And now I'm sort of in the next step where I'm doing consulting work and I'm lecturing and I'm also producing my own show and I, I help produce other people's shows. Okay. So, and, but all, all really, all broadly related for food, uh, broadly related to food, but very specifically towards meat. And that's really what, meat is what got me into food writing. And, you know, by default, I needed to become well-versed in all aspects of food, even vegetables uh, and, and other non other food that had that didn't have parents. Right. Um, but then, you know, when I, when I really, really comes down to it, what I really love eating is a piece of prime rib or a steak or, you know, yeah. something like that. So I've sort of been fortunate in my career, not just within the food, but in my other careers, which is I, I worked in nightclubs and... Um, owned a tattoo shop at one time and have had all these interesting jobs that weren't really mainstream jobs, but they dovetailed very nicely with the trends of the time. So in the 80s and 90s, I was working bars in the East Village, and that's when that neighborhood really ascended to become a food food, uh, destination. To me, the East Village, unless you're looking for four-star, you know, four-star New York Times and Michelin-starred restaurant, 
it's got everything we need. Like you could really live in the East Village and, and eat out probably 300 days and not eat the same thing. Um, <laughs> but you know, and that as that neighborhood became a food neighborhood, I became a food writer and sort of grew along with it. And you know, it was really at the time of like the David Chang, Momofuku taking off 2006, like that era. Um, it started food blogging, and there was no food bloggers back then. So now, now food writing as opposed to food critic. I mean, food, you were well, you were writing things. about food. Well, all all food critics are food writers, but not all food writers are food critics, right? right? And I was a critic at one time for Serious Eats, um, but I think that 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 discipline is a very specific thing, and in the context of New York. It's even more. It's even more sort of rarefied, and I mean, there is no, there's no more powerful single voice in food than the New York Times restaurant critic in New York, and probably nationally, ultimately. Um, although I think that what's happened in the last, what's happened in the last ten years, and also is really part of this, of, of food coming becoming this thing in popular culture with the same sort of importance that other crafts and arts have so film music theater poetry you know food is ascending to that cultural plane in terms of oh, the yeah. importance of restaurants and i don't think that was ever really the case before the internet before this explosion of interest in food and i think that that's what's great about the internet look it fostered my entire career right sure. I, my career was in the physical world before this, I was, you know, standing at the door of dodgy nightclubs or I was, you know, <laughs> sitting behind the desk writing something, you know, for print, something that would actually go in, that there would be a physical object. You know, working sure. in the digital era is, is kind of, it's, it's bizarre if you really think about it, that literally your entire body of work, and if you, you know, I have over a thousand articles online, I have 300 hamburger reviews alone online, right? Oh my God. Those could all disappear. As soon as those servers go down, the internet sees those are gone, right? Forever, At least, right. you know, print journalism, print writers, there is a physical embodiment of that work. But ultimately, that's also ephemeral because it could just all go up, and, you know, in a puff of smoke, I suppose. Um, but it's, you know, it's amazing what the digital era has done for democratizing industries and creating new ones. Oh, think, about, uh, think about that app, Resi. You know, Resi, the the um, the reservations app for. Yeah. Okay, so Resi was founded by uh, Ben Leventhal, who also founded Eta, who was which was my last corporate job was with Eta.com. Right. Um, Resi is a is something that only exists in the digital realm because otherwise you would just call up a restaurant and make the reservation. That was the only way to get a reservation or maybe you would write them a letter. But Resi basically is a, an entire industry and they just got bought by American Express, right? Did they really? Yeah, which is, I mean, it's, like, it's great. Like, <clears throat> it's, uh, you know, that's ultimately the dream of anyone who comes up with one of these things is to sell it is to right. build the cell and then go into the next one. I mean, I think that's that's sort of that's what digital entrepreneurship kind of dictates. You know, I always say that um, we used to have measure fame in minutes, so you had your fifty minutes of fame, but now it's I think it's in gigabytes these days. Oh, so, absolutely. 
I mean, it's I, I watch it with with everything that we do. You know, I mean, everything that we do. You know, I sat and when I sat in Carl's kitchen, I stopped. I got to take a picture. All right, everybody, stop talking to me for thirty seconds while I edit this. I post it. I fit it. You know, I send it out. You know, is you know, and then what happens from that point going forward? It's the same thing that I see with my kids. My girl said to me the other day, "Dad, go and like my pictures." You know, go through and like it's all about about it what is, but, everybody's but, seeing. But none of side. none of the none of these impulses are any different. It's right. just they're expressed in a new way, and that we're we're constantly treading in this new territory. And you, you, it's like we're speaking a new language, and we're not really comfortable with it. And it comes off awkward, and it comes off very awkwardly when old people try using the the terms of. Um, <laughs> of young people, but it's no different than when I was coming home with a punk rock single when I was 14. And, you know, my parents might try to relate to that or try to speak that language, although they actually didn't, but yeah, they might, but it would have been very awkward. Right. And, sure. and I think that there's always been vanity. There's always been this, look, we're social creatures. We want to be accepted. So, you know, on, on the most fundamental level around the campfire, it's who gets sick, who gets to sit closest to the campfire is the same as who gets the most likes on their inter Instagram post, right? So that hierarchy has always been there. And that sort of gradation, that measurement of social worth, it's just that it, it's expressed in such, in such new ways. But it's that way with every generation. Every generation thinks that the generation that's coming after them is fucking up the world. Right? And they're all right. They're absolutely all right. Collectively, we are. Yeah. But yeah, we are. Now, now what? I mean, you went from, you know, being in clubs, owning tattoo shops into the digital, you know, into the writing world, into the food world, into it's digital. Like, <clears throat> I think like many people, like I just followed my passion and yeah. I had. It all, honestly, my food writing career really started because of a single dish, uh, and it, that's the prime rib at Smith & Wilinski Steakhouse on 3rd Avenue and 49th really? Street. Yeah. I used to my, – so my dad took me there for the first time in the 80s, and, like, I fell in love with it. With, coming from England, I was already predisposed to love prime rib, right, um, right. which in England is called roast beef. Right, um, right. But here it's prime rib, and – and real prime rib, not roast beef that's, you know, not like top round that's passed <laughs> off as, you know, like I'm talking about real ribs, <laughs> right? Rib bones. Sure. So that piece of meat specifically, it's dry aged 21 days in the Smith & Walensky basement. It's USDA prime beef, corn fed, Midwestern, you know, salt of the earth, hearty American stock. And it's a roasted for like four hours I actually, these days, I call up the restaurant, or I have been for decades, calling up the restaurant and just asking them to put aside a piece of rare prime rib for me because I'm, I like it, like, ridiculously rare. Okay. okay. So that, and I would eat this dish during the 80s and into the 90s, like, at, like, every special occasion, like a birthday or, you know, like a marriage or divorce or a graduation, right? All of these, like, that was my go-to celebratory place. And... Then when I started making a lot of money, um, it became my almost. I was started eating there on a weekly basis at one point. Yeah, I did that. I, I did that I, with a with a with a couple of places where I would just go in and just try sit down and grab a dry ribeye weekly. Yeah, and I would do this every Sunday. Actually, it was my because Sunday in England is traditionally you have the roast and the roast. Okay. Could be anything really. It could be pork, lamb, beef. Um, I mean, the origins of it are very 
I mean, they're very sort of integral to English culture. That was a, the big feast of the week was if you were going to have an expensive meal, it was Sunday after church. Okay. And the way they would traditionally do it is, look, poor people didn't have ovens. So the bakers weren't baking bread on, on weekends. You know, part of working class law, part of working class history is that you would take your roast in a, in a you know, in, in a pan down to the local baker. They would bake the roast during church, then you might come back and collect it and go home and eat, wow. right? Or you would leave the roast cooking while you were at church. Right. Then that meal itself becomes the whole family eats, you know, and it's like the big meal of the day. Sure. We didn't That's have that. I didn't have, we didn't have it all. I never went to church growing up. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> no offense. I mean, look, just I just, let I it feel know. no offense to everyone who, who has faith. And I feel, look, I feel honestly, Deprived that I don't have faith and that it's sort of, you know, it's it's a whole, I have no spirituality in my life, I don't feel, you know. Wow. Now maybe, maybe it's expressed in different ways. Look, I get very weepy when I hear the American National Anthem in big open arenas. And I the just whole, watched the, it. That is stirring. That's absolutely stirring. I just watched stirring. a video this morning of a, of a 96-year-old guy playing the National Anthem on the harmonica. And I kind of had a... I had a little tear, you know. I mean, that's, that's a 96-year-old dude who was in World War II. Yeah, you see that stuff. I'm I'm getting a little weepy just thinking about that entire notion, right? Um, but so I never had that experience. But we did have Sunday roast, and that was you know always my favorite meal because my mother would cook what what's called silver side in England, but it's probably like a, it's a top round here basically. Okay. Um, and we would uh, you know th so roast beef was always my sort of favorite thing, and and Sunday. Even though I didn't have a traditional English upbringing because my parents were sort of traveled all over the place, okay. lived in Italy and lived in the States also. Um, you know, I always sort of, you know, I always looked at that Sunday thing as being a sort of centering meal. Right. That's, I mean, it's the way it was. I, I mean, on my side, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. And that was that, you know, the Irish exactly. Italian Catholic. So it was that Sunday meal that yeah, no matter but, what, no matter where we were, we always ended up back at my parents' house. What happens when, when March 17th ends up on a Sunday? Well, you know, it's funny you said about religion. It's funny you said about religion because I I remember when St. Patrick's Day was on a Friday during Lent. And they put a huge thing out saying it's okay to eat corned beef and cabbage on Friday this year. And I... And and, and Nick, seriously, there's the laugh about that because it's kind of funny. But that was my first question of, well, hold on a second. <laughs> Wait a second. For the last 29 years or whatever, I've been told that I can't eat meat on Friday. And now I can because it's St. Patrick's Day. I need to double check some of these rules. <laughs> I want to know what the fuck is going on out there right now. Like, I, I remember it, Viv, I remember that thought and I remember thinking to myself, wait a second. I'm not supposed to eat meat on Fridays, but now I'm allowed because it's St. Patrick's Day. And that was the beginning of my questioning of, you know, the religion that I was raised up on. So it's kind of weird that you said that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, so I, but I never had that, but I still, you know, I still, I still look back on that meal and I still, you know, I still, I love the importance of it. Sure. And, and I would, I would go to Smith and Walensky every Sunday. And then at one point I was like, 
God, there's got to be other steakhouses, right? I know quite yeah. anything in New York. Of course, there's other steakhouses. So I got the Zagat Guide, at, which was, I don't know if you remember at the time. Oh, it was book. Before it was the Bible, right? Right, um, absolutely. For those, for those millennials who don't know what the Zagat Guide is, it was a dining guide that was, it was really curated by opinion. They would send out questionnaires and people would like, you know, Several thousand New Yorkers would would fill out these forms and send them back, and then the Zagats. Uh, there were a couple would kind of curate the list, pull out quotes. So every review would have like every entry would, would have best. maybe like seventy five words or fifty words with some quotes. You know, great ambiance, good date night. You know, um, and. I actually I took the Zagat guide, which came out yearly, and I still have them. I have the, I have a stack of them, um, and I would I went through them and I went to all the top steakhouses. And back then there was I mean now there's probably like over a hundred steakhouses, but back then in places that were serving dry aged beef, which was what I really was concerned with, right. it was probably twenty. And it was the classics like Peter Luger's, Keen's, Delmonico's, uh, Wolfgang's hadn't opened yet. Um, Ben and Jack's. I mean, there was a bunch of them. I actually went through, I went to all of them. I ended up going to like every steakhouse in the Zagat Guide. And was this, was this prior to documentation? Yes. Was this just purely for enjoyment? Documentation ensued because of this. I started taking notes basically. Okay. And okay. that ended up becoming my, it was originally going to be a, I mean, there wasn't a blog because I didn't, there was no blogging back then. I mean, it was very early. It was probably 2002, 2003. Right. Um, I mean, there were food blogs, but I didn't know about them. Um, there was Chowhounds, right, which was kind of the the precursor to food blogging with Chowhounds. And um, I started a website called Beef Aficionado because I was re- it was really about the beef, and it's ultimately that's my favorite thing to eat is beef, whether it's a prime rib or a steak or hamburger or short ribs or whatever it is um it's always that's always what i look for on the menu first like that's what i would order i mean obviously not in a sushi restaurant but um although they do have a lot of wagyu on the menus these days oh my god it's everywhere (laughs) um so started keeping notes and then put on this website and the website was like, I had to learn coding. It was a pain in the ass. So, I mean, there was something up there, but it wasn't really coherent. Right. And when Google came out with blogger software, where it was literally like just filling out a form, it was so simple. It was the best. So That's, easy. I started that um, and I ended up getting hired by Serious Eats, which had, was only like a year old at the time. How, how long how long had you been doing the blog prior to? I mean, was it Maybe, like? Not even a year. Really? Yeah, it was, but it was very early on, and the con- the community was small, but pretty tight knit. Um, and living in New York, you you know you you tend to run into people in the places that you might be you know talking about. And at that time, it was like Shake Shack was seasonal at that time. So yeah. I remember we, we would like all get together and like meet at the opening and the closing of Shake Shack. Um, so you would run into people, and then so I got hired by Adam Cuban, Cuban who um, was the general manager of Serious Eats at the time, but had also founded two blogs like way earlier than that called called A Hamburger Today and Slice. And it was a hamburger blog and a pizza blog. And a pizza blog. I love it. And they were like, sorry, go ahead. Do you know Rev Ciancio? I do, of course, yeah. Yeah, Rev was on as well. Rev and I Rev and I have become friends over the last year and a half. He's well, a good I'm, dude. So. I'm sorry to hear that, Brian. You can, I you love him. Probably, you can probably get help for that, I would say. He yeah. cra- I just saw him in uh, in Austin. 
two weeks ago, or in Chicago last week at NRA. So he, he so cracks me up. He was exactly from that sort of a little after that era, but he had um, Burger Conquest. Right. So by the time I was, so I, I remember running into him, we would do like, he had the uh, the Burger Club. Anytime it would snow, we'd go to a Shake Shack. So I have some pictures of him actually in like Hawaiian shirts, oh gold chains, sunglasses, yeah. a hamburger in hand. And it's like 22 degrees and there's like snow everywhere and it's just coming down like, you know, like in a snow globe. Um, so yeah, I know, I've known Red for years and he's definitely from that era. Like that's yes. sort of at the totally. beginning of the food blogging. So I was at Serious Eats. Um, I, I started off as the hamburger reviewer and then I added to that the pizza reviewer and then on to, onto that restaurant re- reviewer. So I was like, I was doing, that's what, and that was criticism. So the restaurant reviews specifically, like you have a dining budget, you're anonymous, you, you know, you don't accept comps. It was, you know, you were undercover as best you can be. And at that time it was easy. Nobody knew who we were, right? It was really interesting going from, so I, I wrote for Serious Eats for seven years and I then went on to work for Eater when they got bought by Vox. Um, but it was very interesting to see the transition of what a food, because I was doing essentially the same thing. I was reviewing restaurants. I was, uh, I started getting into doing um, very much behind the scenes, talking to the chef in the kitchen, step-by-step coverage of things, hamburgers, dishes. Um, I had a column called Steakcraft that Serious Eats that ran for a couple of years. And that was, that, yeah. that was like, it was awesome because I got to try like every steak in New York, you know, and, and from the dream. With, with the chef itself, with the yeah. chef. And it was really step by step. So we'd start with the meat and we see him seasoning and I would take pictures of the whole thing. Who's and, the most memorable? I mean, it's almost like it's just such a blur of excellence. Like the, the favorite yeah. one was the one we, when we did the Smith and Walensky prime rib. Because it Personal, was like, yeah. it was, you know, it was like, it was like being backstage with your favorite band, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you've probably done that and I've actually yeah. done that. Yeah. But that was that, it was that sort of, you know, it was that sort of a visceral experience. But there was, I mean, look, anytime I work with Michael LaMonaco at Porterhouse, it's what a, what a, a, oh my God, what a the, great the guy is, an, he like, he's an American treasure. Totally. Uh, 100%. And for the viewers that don't know this, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tragic and sort of uplifting story. He, he has an illustrious career, 21 Club. Yeah. I mean, going back, you know, just, but was the chef at Windows of the World on 9-11. And right. were, it not, were it not for his barber being late, would not be with us. Right. Now, if it was now and you look at Michael's head, he wouldn't have had a need for a barber. <laughs> So he's lucky right. that uh, it was back then. But it, tragic. I mean, he lost, like, a lot of folk. Lost his whole and restaurant. Lost, you know. His, his staff, his friends. Yeah. Everybody. So, but has but dedicated the next, like, decade of his life to, like, building this. I mean, you know, he went on he, he, he went on a sabbatical. He, like, you know, obviously had to do soul searching. But it's, like, really been instrumental in the funds and the lives of these people. You know, yeah. the families of those people. And started what I consider the the grandest steakhouse in New York, um, Porterhouse, New York, in the Time Warner Center, probably uh, 11 years ago now. Is it more? It's got to be more. It must have been 2005, 2006-ish. Just an amazing, amazing steakhouse. But so I did did one with him. That was incredible. I, there's so many. I did like I did, a lot of them. Restaurants that aren't even with us anymore, like Resto and um, you know these other places. 
when I wonder, you know, I mean, if uh, imagine, does Zagat still print? So what happened was, was the gat is that they ended up getting obsumed into the Google Empire. Yeah. And they were part of that whole thing. And recently, I'm not talking about within the law, they got, they got spun off and pulled to the infatuation. So it, it stopped printing days ago. It was this online only thing. And it, while when you went to any Google Play search, those ratings were actually the GAT ratings. Mm. That has now been, I think, Google got rid of it. They basically have their own rating system now, which is, you know, it's probably an adaptation of that, and they probably drew on that data. Right. But then they spun off the GAT and sold it to the infatuation, who, ironically, are going to print, <laughs> are going to end up printing a new, I've heard that they're reprinting it, uh, which wow. should be kind of, interest um, I don't know how that how well how that will work but it's it's nice to have sort of physical it's nice to have physical objects you know that's why I like I like, the like cameras it. and and LPs yeah there's certain parts of these I mean it's you know I, I remember you know, the book yeah. and I remember the first time that I was in the Zagat and I oh, remember it said this funky that, right, little biob nothing yeah it was just awesome to me. I mean, it was such a, and I remember that, like all those first, you know, the first time I was written up and by, when I was, you know, got my bells from Craig LeBan in Philadelphia and Michael Klein writing me up at that time. I mean, those were like massive things for me. That was my first restaurant, my first look into, you know, any form of quote unquote accolade for what it was that I was doing, which I never gave a shit about in the first place. I just liked to cook and luckily I was good at it. But right. to me, that was like, I mean, I remember that. I remember sitting down and just being like, no shit. Like people actually gave a shit to talk about us, you know, and holding that book. Oh, okay. And I, I remember I had a press kit and it was one of the first press kits that we, you know, that was ever really put together. And this was way before the wonderful digital aids where you can just, you know, screenshot, copy, paste and all that stuff. I remember my first press kit had my Zagat rating in there. <laughs> and it was awesome. one page. It was one page, Nick, with the blurb photocopied in the middle of it. I'll never <laughs> forget that. Yeah, that was my first press kit. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's, you know, we, we have different measures of that now. But it's yeah. funny how you'd think that the Internet would would give everyone the ability to do their own advertising. Yeah. But the fact is, there's more PR agencies than ever. Right. And I'm getting back to the transition and how my how I've noticed that the difference that the Internet has made and, and how the Internet is perceived. When we start, when I was writing for Serious Eats and I was like reviewing restaurants, right? Like I would review like Maria or like a Jean, like you know, Jean-Georges or something. Right. And first of all, when you would say like if the Times back then called them up and said we want to come in and take pictures of these dishes they'd be like of course they roll out the Jean-Georges we'll prepare the dishes for you personally blah 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 we'll give you the right. we would call them up and they'd be like serious who? they're like no can we have press photo? no no press photo you know like so I would literally have to take cameras into restaurants with me to shoot the pictures for the review right and it would, at the time, not, you take a picture of your food now, it's almost, if you don't take a picture of your food, they look at you weird. Of course. Back then, well, I was pulling out like a DSLR, you know, like a big, like, a, like at the time, it was like a Nikon D700 or a D300 or something, you know, with, with like a 60 millimeter macro lens. And they're like, 
what is this maniac doing taking a picture exactly. of, you know so exactly. i would play it off like i would i would i literally take the camera manual with me and pretend i was like learning the camera or something just to not feel like totally weird oh no i'm just learning how to use a camera right but now you know to the point that the transition in the way that websites are respected by the end of my tenure at serious eats pr agencies were rolling out the red carpet i was getting 50 emails a day inviting me to different things right and it's just you know restaurants fairly early on cottoned on to the idea that like, oh, there's actually traction on this in this whole digital thing, right? In this digital bag. And it actually spawned, an, you know, it spawned creativity in public relations that was never there before. Well, and, and no need for it. You were only ever advertising, you were only ever thinking about print, right? Right. About getting- and it created new jobs. It created a wealth of new jobs. Yeah, I mean, and now you've got you know twenty-one-year-old kids that are taking better pictures than 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 the average human being because they're you know doing it the right way and they're lighting it and they're walking in and sitting down and now they've got a job as a food photographer. Right. You know, I mean, look at. Have you been out to eat with Rev when he takes pictures of food? Uh yes. Unfortunately, uh, ooh, he pulled out that LED light lately and it's been blinded. I bought that it's light. Like being, I have uh, that it's light. Like being inter- inter- <laughs> to being interrogated. <laughs> and he takes like twenty five pictures, and he's very strategic about his posts and what he does. It's it's a riot. It, it's it's. I mean, in reality, it's brilliant because he does such a good job at it. You know, and I love his insights into the restaurant, his techniques, and stuff like that. But it's it, it was you know we had we were in 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 Washington in like. I don't even know the name of the town. We were out there looking at potatoes because we were doing French fry stuff. Mm. And he's like, I have to go to this place called Zips, which is like a burger spot in California or in Washington. And we went into Zips and ordered, I don't know, $100 worth of food between three of us. And he whips out the camera and he whips out the he whips out that light middle of the day taking his pictures. Yeah, I, I I hate those lights because I'm an actual photographer and right. not to get too geeky, like the white balance is awful on them. I mean, it just there's just a hundred things that are wrong. Look, it works contextually. It exactly. it almost works. It almost bad photography almost works better on Instagram because you know being hyper professional and all you know has its own it has its own vernacular and yes. that's not what you're looking for. You want authenticity on Instagram, right? Yeah, um, but. But yeah, getting back to that era, like, and think about what Rev's career went from, right? He was actually in marketing for like music management, right? He was doing like bands and heavy metal stuff. Yes. And his whole career changed. I mean, he went on to work for that meat company, the the burger maker people, now yeah. Schweiden Sons, and had, you know, got those guys into social media. And now has like become this, you know, basically a, a marketing uh, guy. And yeah. that's what he's, but really, towards the restaurant industry, right? And towards local businesses. So yes, he created, uh, I think he created Burger Week in New York. He's got Burgerati. He's got Steak Club. He's got Fun With Fries, I think. Yeah, so, right. So Steak Club was one of the original things he did is when I first met him was was Steak Club 7 it was? Yes, yeah. Which was kind of, you know, what I had been doing, which was just going to all the different steakhouses. Yeah. Um, She just happened to, it was just, you know, I was doing it on a, on a personal level. 
these guys were like getting together and like just going out and you know eating steaks which is the way you're supposed to eat steaks <laughs> well i remember you did the one of the one of the first times that i not not one of the first times but one of the videos that you did that just i i couldn't I couldn't stop watching. You know, there's times where you might sit there and you look at a video and you look at your phone or, you know, you're, you might look outside or something to that effect. And I was just, I was completely engaged and you were eating Wagyu and you were, you just, at one point you just stopped. You were like, this is the greatest thing I've ever put in my mouth. <laughs> and I literally was like, I need to fucking hang out with this dude sometime. Because <laughs> I remember seeing that and I just... Just the way you stopped in the middle and you just kind of put your fork down and and you I want to I want to say that you like almost sat back in your chair and shot your head back. Like I just remember I, 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 I just remember that that I guess it was Wagyu that you were eating. I don't know you were in Japan or something. I don't remember. Um, but I remember that video. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is that that's the, the, my show, The Meat Show. Yeah. Um, that it was all unscripted and live. Like that was my actual reaction. And that was Which probably the first time. Well, it's, that's why that show worked, I think, because I'm not sort of that conscious about being, you know, I'm really looking at it like, um, I'm just talking, like if we were having dinner, that's how I look at it. Like, right, exactly. that's why I love this piece of meat. And uh, this is my favorite piece on this piece of meat. Right. And I think that's why it works. Um, and it's because I'm, all I ever talk about is meat, so because <laughs> I'm so boring. But if you could just synthesize, like you know, moments of my life, that's the interesting part of my life. So that that's kind of why the meat show works, I think. Um, so so let let me ask you. Okay, so you know, well, first of all, let's do this. What is the best piece of meat that you've ever eaten? It's still the Smith and Walensky prime. Still rib. the Smith and Walensky. Still, and you know what? It's at this point, it almost I have such an intellectual and emotional investment in that sure. piece of meat. And, you know, people want to argue with me all the time. And, you know, my, look, my favorite hamburger in New York is a $6 diner burger that's a block away from my house. And, and yeah, people get, I like, generally get irate by that answer. And I'm like, I can't, you know, you love things for reasons other than just how they taste, even though I could fully defend on a, I can defend why that, why the two objects that I love so much taste the way they do and why they're authentic expressions of hamburgers and prime rib. Right. But. There's so, to me, what's interesting about food is more everything that goes around it than just the food. Of course, sure. the food has to have a fundamental level of, you know, it's not going to kill you. Yeah. Right. But I love, you know, when you discover that like $2 hot dog that people would be scared to eat. But it's, it's like it, it embodies so much more than just being a $2 hot dog, right? And it, it connects you to people that you would never be able to afford to eat a lot of the food that you eat. Exactly. I've got a place down in North Carolina, which is exactly, it's, you know, my burgers are six bucks. That's what a hamburger, sh I mean, that's, you that's know, they're two, three, and 3.75 ounce, ounce hand patted burgers that we make every day. And we've got a great seasoning blend that goes right on top of it. And we griddle them and we put it on good bread and, you know, it's done with good shredded lettuce and thin tomatoes. And we salt the tomatoes and when they go on the burger so that it starts to break down a little bit with a touch of red onion, like it's just the basic of a great burger to me. And that's what I did down here. I'm a classically trained chef. I did all the fun shit. I did all the classic French, blah, blah, blah. I did the whole nine yards. Right. This is my down and dirty spot. I make a great fucking hot dog every single week. Last week I did this. I did a, I did a chicken fried hot dog. 
<laughs> nice. That actually sounds very English. Oh yeah, with bacon. <laughs> because, but, you know, we did it with the bacon them? gravy, which is an emulsification of the you know of the fat and the liquid, and you right. know that we just pull together, and it's just really cool shit. And that's my fun because I put chef work into making a fucking burger and a hot dog. Well, that it's just great. And that's really what, like to me, I, look, I wrote about hamburgers as a reviewer for for years, almost a right. decade. I had burger columns and all that. And it would have been very boring if I only ever wrote about what I love in a hamburger, which is exactly. basically like a five ounce chuck, griddle cooked, American cheese, white squishy bun, pickles, yes. maybe a smear of mustard, but maybe not even that. You know, and that to me, that's that's what a hamburger should be. Now, where does the chef come into it? The chef gives you the the perfect versions of all of those three fundamental ingredients and puts them together in a way that, you know, that, that uses his training to do that. Now, look, when when uh, Danielle came up with the uh, DB burger, which is foie gras stuffed short rib patty with caramelized onions and a brioche with shaved truffles and, you know, that... It's a look. It's a delicious food object. It's not right. a fuck hamburger. Exactly. <laughs> that yeah. is not a hamburger. A hamburger is defined by having a hundred percent beef patty, and a, and it's served on a white squishy bun. Not. It doesn't have to be a white squishy bun, but it has to look like a hamburger bun. Right. Of course. Um, nobody would. You know. If you. That's what a hamburger should be. And I. I love all of these. You know. Every chef wants to put a burger on his menu, but I wish they wouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> I would just leave that to the uh, to the diner and to the American. You know, there, there's still, look a steakhouse needs a hamburger, right? I agree. An Italian restaurant does not need a hamburger. Totally agree. Um, totally agree with you. So, but anyway, that's you know, I'm I'm I really like the fundamentals, and you know, I was talking to a chef the other day, and we were talking about I'm not going to name it, but a, a very exclusive restaurant considered one of the best in the world, and I was like. Honestly, I, I go, I don't have a lot of interest in eating there. And they're like, why not? You know I mean, blah, blah, blah. I was like, and I said, ultimately, it's because I don't like restaurants that are about food. <laughs> and I don't, it sounds weird because, of course, all restaurants are about food. But I like restaurants that are a little less self-conscious about the cuisine. So those are places like steakhouses and burger joints and, you know, those old school Italian restaurants that you in Philadelphia especially have some amazing places like Ralph's, you know, like those those kind of places, you know, where the food is good and really good and in some cases superb. But in many cases, like Katz's Deli here in New York or like, you know, Pine Burger in, 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 uh, in California, like those places are unparalleled because they're so unique in what they do. Right. Um, and, you have know... You Sorry, have you done a Hodads? Have you been out to San Diego and had a Hodads? I haven't. That's the, that's the, I have not been to San Diego, but I've heard that's a great hamburger. Great burger. Great. And, and it's cause it's, cause it's all about the burger and that's what he designed it for. He said, it's a burger. This is California, what you need and that's it. California's cheeseburger paradise, isn't it? There's just great little spots. Great you know what the spots. thing, the thing about it is like, it, we're, we're in the Northeast, right? We need to eat cheeseburgers. It, the yeah. weather is shit half the year. Ugh. You know, our politicians Ray. are corrupt. It's, oh, it's, it's like our sports, half our sports teams are terrible. And the, we, and we and literally the infect the rest of the country. Right. But so we need to eat cheeseburgers. There are fundamental and, and cheesesteaks in, in the case of Philadelphia. And we'll talk about that, too. We will. Subject. But in California, like they're all avocados and like sunshine and bikini bodies and, you know, 
Sundry, sun, and, what is it? Sunshine, rainbows, and happiness. That's yeah. It. Like they don't need to eat cheeseburgers, but they do, and yeah. they do it. You know, I mean, granted, they put all that weird rabbit food on it, but their cheeseburgers are fantastic. So you're not a you're not a salad guy on your burger. No, I mean my I, my ideal hamburger is just between the two. Typical is just a slider, like you know. No, I don't. Yeah. But when I'm in California, it's like anything else. I don't want to eat a New York style cheeseburger in California. I, I agree. If I'm traveling, I only want the local stuff. Somebody took a picture of the line in front of Starbucks. I guess it was yesterday. It was called Ruiz. Oh fuck! I saw that, and I was. I, I, you're absolutely. There's, you're standing in line in New York City in Times Square, waiting to get a cup of coffee at Starbucks. At like, what is that about? Yeah, and that Starbucks is just bizarre. As if Starbucks isn't bizarre enough. That one right. is. They have a pizzeria station. <laughs> they have a bakery oh, program. They have like baristas with like you know. Handlebar mustaches and suspended. Well, um, they're so also trying to figure out how to pay that fucking you know one hundred and seventeen thousand dollar rent. I don't. So think let's get as much revenue. That. No, I think that this is sort of a this is really them like trying to branch out and see what will work. Like you may right. see like Starbucks style like bakery, you know. Right. They already tried that. You know, they bought didn't they buy Boucherie, um a few years ago? I believe so. Yeah. Why are we talking about Starbucks? I have no idea. I was, <laughs> Let's I talk about something else. I was talking about yeah, standing in line, eating but yeah. shit that you shouldn't be, and drinking and it. Just go to the right. local place instead. Well, exactly. And there's so you know, there's so many. Like, that's what I used to love about Shake Shack. It was one of the few lines that was actually worth standing in line for. Yeah. And I would still encourage people visiting New York if you haven't to been to the Shake Shack, like go to the original. Like that's what the original experience was. That you know, it was really. Well, it, it, Shake Shack started as a it was it was actually an art project believe it or not there was an art exhibit and really? one of the things they decided to do was put a, a, a Chicago style hot dog stand in the park and they ended up also selling hamburgers there and, and that begot Shake Shack it's, I mean it's a long story now that like a publicly traded company with yeah. you know multi, you know international franchise international locations all over the place it's pretty amazing a great, a great hamburger and that to me that's a 21st century hamburger I mean it's a very f- high fat content it's pretty pretty salty right like, I, I don't know I don't know what the nutritional values on it are but I'm sure that it's pretty you know in terms of what those nutritionists might recommend it's probably you know a substantial portion of your day's recommended allowance right but fundamentally it's such a it's such a principled and well-executed hamburger. I mean, the flavor, the the Maillard you get from the pressing of the patty, um, you know, the, the selection of everything. Um, right. You're one of the only other people in the world that I know that uses the term Maillard. <laughs> well, it's being honest. Icky, but, you know, from being a meat guy, that's for the, for the that's audience. That's the main that, part. Yeah, well, you want that browning effect. That yeah. that browning effect is what gives meat the, those characteristic roasted, dark, you know, charred notes, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I've come to a, re- a weird realization recently, and it's that I might prefer Wagyu beef, Japanese beef, with no Maillard on it at all. Just the straight. Straight, either raw, sliced very thin, or shabu-shabu style. Where yeah. they just swish it in water or in a broth, really. It's not just right. water. You are flavoring. The, the broth flavors the beef and vice versa, right? You're pulling fat off it. Mm-hmm. There's something about the, and for the audience, the Wagyu beef is the Japanese breed of beef. It's intensely marbled, very high fat content. 
um, it's a different breed of animal than what we're used to eating in the West, certainly. Um, and it has, it's, it's fat, it's, it has a different melting point. It's, it's very high on oleic acid, so it melts actually at room temperature. So if you hold a piece of Wagyu in your hand, it will start to sort of sweat. Yeah. Um, and I think there's just something about the flavor that it's really about the flavor of the fat more than anything there. And I think American beef is, is about the about the collusion of the of the muscle and the fat and the char and the salt, right? Sure. That's we gotta break it down. Yeah, it's a it's That's a really it, it's a brute force approach to it, right? But it, <laughs> it, it does it does give you that that intense punch of flavor, right? And that's what you want. That's that beefy steak and potato experience. Right. The reason I love prime rib is because it's a much more coddled and more delicate flavor. Um, but to me, it's sort of in prime rib embodies, it's a more diverse penalty of, of meat textures and flavors. So you're getting sort of the, you're getting that gentleness of a stew, right? Those dark, long roasted notes, but you're also getting that that sort of on the edge, especially you get that bark from uh, like the like a good barbecue. I love that that. Bark. And that that sort of textural contrast between the outside and then the, the sort of really supple interior. I'm playing bark. Why. I'm playing lots of bark right now. I just bought a barbecue place, so all oh, I've been doing it, is working fucking brisket and ribs, brisket yeah. and ribs, brisket and ribs for the I, last I don't think people, three weeks. You know, I don't think people appreciate what it takes to, to really get to really nail that you know oh, i mean i'm i'm in the re- we don't open until four o'clock i'm in the restaurant at 9 30 10 a.m getting right. the smoker going getting the ribs done you know getting the ribs set getting everything in you know i brine my chickens for 24 hours before they go in you know there's a fuck ton of work that goes into it i thought yeah, I it's, it's not like you're a trained chef you could yeah. work, run any kitchen right but yeah Running a barbecue restaurant is you. You've got to relearn the whole thing. It's a whole different world. It's not cooking in the same, in the classic sense. And you know, I see this. I was judging a um, a, a rib cooking contest last summer, and there was like all of these like there was pit masters and there was chefs. Like yeah, there was fucking chefs with stars that couldn't even light a fucking fire. You yeah, know, I'm it's, like, you, you, it, you're it, humbled. You can be humbled real fast. Yeah, and they were looking at like the pit guys and the guys were doing like the lat. Ladder, right? They're like running off, like you know, oh, like yeah. when they have this this long tray where it's just this rolling flame, right? Just keeps giving. It was amazing, like the way some of the <laughs> things do. But you know, like it's an unknown thing, right? Every every cook is different. The fire responds in a different way every time, and every you know, in a, in a way that a commercial kitchen is so regulated and so predictable. I mean, and I've got I've got both. I've got a you know I've got a twelve foot mobile smoker that's fully stoked the whole nine yards and i've got a forty thousand dollar you know gas fired smoker that i had to back off of my my mobile with my guys because i'm like you know it's every 15 minutes for these guys to do this so i'm only doing certain items in my in my full-blown wood smoker or my wood you know, smoker because I'm the only guy who can handle it. I'm the only guy who understands it. I'm the only uh, guy who knows how to hold that temp at that perfect 225. You know, right? My cooks are outside smoking a cigarette, texting their girlfriend, and they're forgetting they've been out there for a half hour. Well, but I mean, that's also that's the nature yeah. of food, of food industry. I mean, that, look, that's why McDonald's oh. has everything automated to the point where they could probably replace the humans, except they would probably be an outcry, right? Well, but. It's coming. I, I just left NRA, man. I'm telling you, automation. Yeah, automation so just, is, is talking rampant. About the national, you talk about the, the National Association. Yeah, we're not talking about say. shooting people. Yeah, no, we're talking although, about. Okay. Yeah, well, 
<laughs> let's not let's not broach that subject. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, it's it's all what you believe, man. It's it's all in what you believe. So, I, I, you know, if you want to have a gun, great. Just don't be a fucking asshole and shoot me. No, I I, I listen. There's a Second Amendment for a reason, right? right? I mean, that that is that's a right. But at the same, yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> but our lawyers have taken it. We don't have to get into this. We don't yeah. have to. We don't, um, we're talking about food. Yeah, and that's not how we get our food anymore. No. Speaking of hunting, here's an interesting one of my one of my maxims in life is that um, <laughs> farmed meat tastes better than wild meat, but wild fish tastes better than farmed fish. I agree. Debate. <laughs> well, there's a control. I mean, there's a control about what you're putting in. You're knowing the outcome. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, you've got a you you've got you know an elk that's rolling around the hills, and he's sucking back berries and and grass, and you know, I mean, over here I've got a controlled diet of what you're gonna eat, so I can tell you what you're gonna taste like. Well, it's also that we we have look cattle in their current form wouldn't exist in nature; they would be they wouldn't know what the hell to do, right? We oh. we we have genetically altered cattle, and and think about this: dogs also. Both of those breeds have had the most impact i think on human life right i mean you look at the first um first cave paintings there were people hunting or probably aurochs which were like the, the the ancestors of modern cattle they were massive beasts right um i mean you think about the the role of cattle in religion right going back Absolutely. to like hindu and you know other, other all other religions going back to to india and stuff and you know cattle have been used for religious purposes for art for trading right and ultimately for beef, and you, you you know you think about the importance of beef in American, and it's certainly in British and American life more than perhaps other. But you, I mean, the legend of the cowboy, like there's such a connection to to meat in Western and especially American life, and that's what I always gravitate towards. Um, you know, to me, the ultimate expression of fine dining isn't that 47 course Nordic foraged affair <laughs> it's actually a steak at a steakhouse or, or a banquet somewhere where there's a you know there's like a, a steamship round or a, or a giant prime rib being served but it's I, I mean and being American and, and, and living and doing and growing up that whole nine yards it is the meat and potato it is the steak and potato it is it is what we what we were that's what my mother made my mother's from Ohio my father was the adventurous one my father was the Italian Irish guy you know who was who was pulling out the old school or the cool cookbooks and you know my mother was making a great steak she was cooking a perfect baked potato she made the greatest mashed potatoes those were the things that are the American staple and 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 I, I go into cities and I would much rather go and sit down for you know I, I was in Vegas a couple of weeks ago no offense everybody I went to Golden Steer oh I love Golden Steer Golden the Steer the the strip I've, I've only been to Vegas once for like four days I hated Just it four days long it was two it was four days it was one day too long because I'm 14 was, I'm days in Vegas a year Oh my God! I'm gonna have to come. And, I, I want to experience the Duffy Vegas because. Well, I don't know. I, that's a. You know what, Carl? I just about to call it to Carl. Nick, that's a that's a shady fucking world, dude. It's a shady well, listen, world. I grew up. I grew up in the Lower East Side, New York, in the '80s. I know shade. <laughs> you got shady. I would love it. Then here, you know no, what? I'm gonna do this. Vegas next year, end of March. Is the nightclub and bar show? It's the largest nightclub and bar show in the world. Oh, that that, that you come out, yeah. You come out, and I, you know what I might do? Why don't I bring you? Let's we're we're gonna we're gonna talk a little further about this, but you're gonna be my guest in Vegas for a day or two. All right, and we'll take you out. You're not gonna sleep much, but we'll take you out. I don't sleep much at all. 
I'll well, sleep instead. I do do a double down, which I know there's a double down in New York, but the double down in Vegas is a completely different experience. The double down in New York is actually, I mean, I consider it a new bar because I I lived on Stanton Street and Riverton Street, which is a few blocks away. It's right. been there for a bit, right? Yeah. But this is, I mean, they got shut down this year for or last year for, for cockroach infestation. I don't understand why that would be something that would be considered detrimental in a dive bar. Well, I, would, it, I would suspect I, I you think should it be shut rampant. down for the opposite. I think it was happened. <laughs> I think it was a little bit further. Sure I've, got a, I've got a video of one of the one of the chefs. I bring a bunch of chefs out to Vegas every year. These are my my dear friends, and we do a whole thing. We do demos and we talk about you know innovation and all that stuff. And Kayla Robeson, who is this? She's known as the Commander in Beef. She oh, she oh, she ran a a burger spot forever. Beautiful girl. We're doing shots of a shot called ass juice, which is served in a toilet. And she picks up a, a gray, what easily could have been a pube on the side of her shot glass, looks at it in the video, smiles, flicks it away, and then does the shot. Like that's, you're in, you're, you're in double down. You're going to, are you sending that back? No, no. And there's a 24 hour dispensary next door. And a 7-Eleven around the corner. And a firing range up the street. (laughs) And and, and a firing range and a strip club. But I I tell you, I love the Golden Steer, which is, uh, you can just imagine like Frank Sinatra eating steak in there, right? In in the hay the whole thing is as you're it's at the end of the strip, it's next to the world's largest general store. And and it's just a classic. You walk in and it's red leather booths, man. Yeah, exactly. It's and guys in, in, in bow ties and white shirts and they yeah. know every – and they're upselling the fuck out of you. Right, right. You sure don't want the cream spinach you know, and the asparagus? There's only four of you. You guys have to get the Leonese potatoes. Come on. Did I talk to you about the mushrooms yet? The mushrooms are out of this world. Four <laughs> sides for everybody. We're good at twenty two fifty a piece. You guys are awesome. I've got another bottle of red coming out in just a second. You look thirsty. You're right I am. We're I mean, out of that one, but this Margot is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Really sorry about that. It's only 120 more. We've got you covered, guys. <laughs> right. Yeah, we took 5% off. Yeah, exactly. You guys are chefs? Oh, good. Perfect. I'm going to send out a couple things for you. I got you covered. <laughs> I love cold. But that's it. that place is great. I mean, I look, when I visit a place I've never been, I, I don't want to go to the, the place that just got reviewed. I want the oldest place in town. That's the foundation. That's... It's been there for a reason for that amount of time, right? And that's, you know, that's why places like Ralph's in uh, Philly, where I went recently. Yeah. yeah. That place is awesome. That's, that's 100 and, uh, they're what, 104, 105 years at this point? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Exactly. We had my grandmother's 90th birthday there, 93rd birthday there. And she'd been going there probably her whole life, and right? Like, she grew up in South Philly. I mean, that was her. She was, yeah. you know, she was the daughter of, of immigrants. And, you know, she was one of six sisters and one brother. You know, and they went to Ralph's. They grabbed their, you know, my grandmother used to go down and she'd grab the chickens live. You know, bring them back, you know, kill them, cut them, clean them, right. sell them. Well, that, you know, and getting back to the, the notion of, you know, what I love in about restaurants. And, you know, it's very few people that will build lifelong and, and multi-generational love affairs at the restaurant that serves, you know, a tasting menu. I mean, yeah, there's probably two or three rich families, you know, that might do that. But like, think about a place like Katz's Deli in New York or Philippe's in Los Angeles or, you know, House of Prime Rib in San Francisco. Like those places, they have so many people have 
memories vested in those places, right? And it, it becomes part of the family tradition and part of, you know, Smith & Wilensky to me was like, uh, uh, it started off, it's now become sort of an un- unnatural obsession, but it started off as really just a place that I would sort of connect and think about my father who took me there for the first time, even though he lived in England, you know, he'd moved back to England at the time. So, Did sorry, you go to Smith & Wilensky on the strip in Vegas? No, I've only, the only Smith & Wilensky I've ever been to is the one here. And I did go to the one in London because my friend Tommy Hahn. The the one on the strip in Vegas was 18 years old. Right. My bartender was the opening bartender for the only freestanding steakhouse or restaurant that was on the strip. They had, it was their own building. They built that building. That was where Smith and Malensky went. And it, it, it the, the, just, it, just every part of it, the bartender was from Philly. He moved out there with his wife, you know, 18 or 20 years ago, whatever he right. got the job, he opened the place up. And that's what I love about a Smith and Malensky. Yeah, it's, the, you know, it's the 52 year old bartender. It's not the 27 year old little hottie with her shirt cut low. Right, who's who just wants to be an Instagram star? Like right. that's the thing, you know. A steakhouse, especially in these old institutions, these war horses, they actually do have people that are there for their career, right? Yeah, um, exactly. And we're and, fucking that up. We're fucking that up across the board with higher rate, higher wage rates, and everything else now. Yeah, look, it's a double edged sword. I mean, it's. <laughs> There's no doubt that there's inequity in labor. There's a lot of inequity in taxation, all of these things. But if you're only penalizing the restaurant and you're not addressing the more fundamental issue and the broader issue, which is just the the cost of doing business, all of these things. You know, in New York, we're seeing minimum wage went up to uh, 15 an hour for for a lot of people. And then even for tip waiters. It went up to like I think it's twelve dollars an hour now. That's eleven. I think it's eleven twenty-five statewide. So it's that has really impacted a lot of the smaller restaurants. Look, a oh, big sure. restaurant group with you know ten or fifteen different places can impact. You know, they'll figure a way to do it. But people are still gonna. People are still losing work. They may not be losing their jobs, but you know, people are cutting back. It's it's having an impact. That doesn't mean that there's not inequity in wage distribution, but you know. As you know, operating a restaurant, people think, oh, I can make a hamburger at home for five bucks. It's like, yeah, but the hamburger at the restaurant that's 15 and 20 bucks costs a little, you're paying for a lot more than just, you know. <laughs> right, you're not just paying for the ground beef in the bun. Right. Where'd my lights come from? Yeah, it's, it's you know, there's so much more involved in it, right? There was a great, there was a great picture that was put out, at whatever, 15 years ago, and it was a picture of a dollar bill, and it broke down what a restaurant makes, which in most cases is five to 10%. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. If, if your you're walk-in not, doesn't not, go down that day. Exactly. If you're not putting money into it. You, you know, know, if your servers aren't stealing from you. I had, you know, first night I had a server who walked, you know, who took $280 out of the register by the way that she was ringing food in. Now she doesn't work for me anymore, but. Hopefully she know, doesn't work for anyone. Two fucking nights, two, two nights into the restaurant. Unbelievable. <laughs> two nights. And, and, and like, do you not know what I do for a fucking living? Yeah. So. Well, look, so, I mean, a, a thief will steal no matter what, right? It doesn't yeah. matter. Right? It's um, but it's, you know, we, we're sort of, fa- I think, was Philadelphia, did you pass a law down there about cash businesses? Well, so, so uh, there was a restaurant group, I think it was called Sweet Green, that was, that, that went cashless. 
Right. Credit only, no cash whatsoever. And they passed a law that, that you have to accept cash. Because I, it I was discriminatory that. against lower income who didn't have credit cards or debit cards. Well, I agree that it should be a law. I think that the reasoning, I don't think that's even, you don't, You shouldn't even have to justify it by giving. <laughs> like, Why is there a fucking law about it? Like, why well, do we to even. Me, to me, the only, look, what binds us as Americans is our right to vote, is our, our nationality, our passport, our ability to cross borders as American citizens. Right. And guess what? The only other document that really matters are, is the dollar. Yeah. To not accept the fundamental operating principle of our system, I think it doesn't make. I think it should be illegal. I agree. And I mean, I, look, I get it. From a restaurant, you just talked about stealing cash. That person would never would have been able to steal that two hundred eighty bucks um, if you were cash only, right? Cash I mean, if you were credit only. But at the same time, like that's a bandaid on a problem. The problem is that people are stealing. Let's address that issue. Not, not because they're going to find a way to steal from you anyway, whether no they steal the product. They can do or, it on the credit card slips as well. Yeah. I mean, they can, they just find a, you know, all the technology does, it just creates more devious criminals. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, but getting back to the cash thing, I mean, I, I, I really, you know, I know it's, it's a, pro, it's a um, populist argument, but I really feel that like, I grew up in these villages. There's people that I know that own tattoo shops and have been bartenders and, and are strippers and uh, have legitimate businesses that pay taxes. But you know what? They're cash. They pay cash. Some of them don't even have bank accounts. They don't need them. Right. The, that's what I love about New York. Like New York allows you to live a almost infinitely variable life. Like you can do – there's so much you can – I mean I feel this way about America generally, but I feel that New York gives you that because it's such a big city and it doesn't it, – it's not it, – it, it's got so much diversity that you can express yourself in ways that you probably wouldn't be able to in, in less in less diverse places, right? Like, See, I want to I do New York with you. Oh, you have because to. Because I feel like every time that I'm coming to New York, I'm not, I'm not seeing what I really want to see. Well, so Which, I do this – I do this thing where I take – chefs and butchers and, and uh, food writers on this like walking tour of the East Village. And it's, you know, some of the places, of course, you'll have heard of, but a lot of the places are just places I've been eating in for year, for decades at this point. They just serve like, they're just like, eating there is an expression of the neighborhood. Eating there, you know, you learn. That's why I think food is so approachable because eating is the one thing that engages every sense. Taste, smell, sound, touch. And because we all eat and we need to eat, it's much easier to empathize with somebody through their food than almost anything else. Agreed. Um, and that's why I think this walking tour kind of helps me define what I love about the East Village. And it's kind of a history lesson. I show you where, like, you know, CBGB's was and all of this other stuff. Um, oh, God, CBGB's. I grew up in that place. Like, that, I was at those shows. I mean, you know. But I snuck beers in when I was 18. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm years sure. in, I had a jacket. Well, I put him in my sleeves. I'm sure Karen loved that. I did. <laughs> I, I mean, I was 18 years old. I got into a fucking bar in New York. It was CBGBs. Come on, I was stoked. So I had beers in my underwear. I had beers. I was fucking 18. I didn't make any money, man. Right. Yeah, I did. Right. I'll never forget. I'll never forget that. <laughs> I was telling oh. my daughter about that a couple of weeks ago. Fuck, I forgot about that. Mm, sorry. Right. <laughs> wow. Now I'd be shot, brought outside, thrown in the streets. The cops would be called. 
Well, I'm curbing me. This is now John Valvato's shop where they sell five hundred dollar jeans, <laughs> <That's> right? <laughs> Which I can buy their T-shirts for nineteen ninety nine in Nordstrom Rack. My bad. It's okay. Nobody, yeah. nobody who ever really hung out at CBGB's ever wore a CBGB shirt. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's like wearing the band shirt of the band you're seeing. You, know, you just don't do that. <laughs> we had a place in we had a place in Westchester, Pennsylvania, that was called Jake's Bar and Grill. It was a college bar. Westchester's a tiny little college town, and those T-shirts they must have given them away to every person who ever walked in the front door. Because <laughs> I, I've been in Italy and seen them. I've been in Greece. And seen them. I mean, I've seen the the Jake's Bar and Grill all over the world. Those T-shirts, and now you see That's the CBGB T-shirts, and the place is closed. They sell them at, at Anthropology closed. for twenty nine ninety nine. Have you been through the Newark Airport? I have not been through Newark in a long time. Newark Airport has something called the CBGB's Lab, and it's like yeah. a it's a cafe that has like you know a cheeseburger and probably a flatbread pizza and some kind of chicken sandwich and probably right. have a toast and then sort of a, like annexed to that is a little sh a little boutique shop that sells like three or four lp like a ramones lp and a patty smith p and then like a cbgb <laughs> t-shirt and a cbgb's cop uh, you know it's right. like very uh, a shock but glass. The thing, oh man it's just so naff like it's so <laughs> but what, what so can you do let's let's talk philly for a minute yeah. You, you have a love for Philly. I do. You know, I, can I quote Josh? Do you, did you know Josh Zersky? You must have known Josh. I know the name. I'm not quite sure if I know Josh Zersky was, he, uh, bless his soul, he was a friend of mine. He was really one of the great, he was really one of the great writers of the, of the modern food writing era. Okay. He sadly passed away about three years ago. God, almost four years ago now. Um, but he had this quote but he was pretty funny he goes the problem with philadelphia is that it's a third-rate city that thinks it's a second-rate city oh my god it's god's <laughs> honest truth <laughs> we're a tiny little fucking town we're not that big at the same it's time though but think about the creative spot like listen can we talk about zahav i mean I it's, it seems it's my it's, favorite most it's the most creative meal that is done in such a simplistic manner that i've ever had by, and it seems counterintuitive. You're talking about like an Israeli restaurant from Philadelphia, like what? And it's, it's right. got a James Beard Award, right? Like, well, it's the best restaurant in the country. It's just one it best just restaurant got, in the country. It's, it's won James so Beards for the last five years. Michael Solomonov yeah. won for best chef. The next year, his his chef de cuisine won. His pastry chef won. Yeah, and they just won best fucking restaurant in the country, and that's not even by beard. That I mean, that's you know that's that is by beard, but it's also by multiple other levels of being the best restaurant in the country. It's He's such a super creative such guy, a great guy, and such a great story, and it's like such a tragic uh, story too, like the story about tragic. his brother. And, yeah, he cleaning uh, out the, but, you know, going back to Israel, finding his love. I mean, that's a great way to do it, man. It's a great uh, story. It's a horrible and then also story. Also, yeah. the uh, Federal Donuts is great. I love that place. Rooster Soup, which they, they created Rooster Soup Kitchen to actually the profits from Rooster Soup go to the Broad Street Ministry, which yeah, is a, so which is a, right. a homeless shelter, basically. And again, you see that, that the whole aspect, what I love about restaurants is their sense of, of place and community. Yeah. And like that's a classic. Look, you can't if you open a brand new restaurant, you're not going to have that 
that storied connection right. to these racial things. But you can imbue yourself with the community by doing things like that, right? Like rather than trying to impose your corporate culture on a place, right? Like that's what I that's what I want in a restaurant. Um, they have a place called Abe Fisher, which is across the street from I guess their second Federal Donut location. That's a barbecue restaurant, right? Say it again. Is that a barbecue restaurant? No, Abe Fisher is another kind of Israeli-themed restaurant that's kind of more about oh, the grandfather portion. It's right next to Golf, which is his, his homeless place. Okay. And yeah, they, they, do, they do a pastrami in there that is just – it's a pastrami plate, and it's a block of pastrami that is it's, – it's one of the greatest things I've had. I mean, in Philadelphia – it's just, it's stunning. It's perfect. They've got pickles on there, the mustard that goes with it. And it's just every single part of it is just perfect. And every time I go in and people think I'm weird, I walk in, I sit at the bar, which is where I want to sit anyway. I have one cocktail because I don't drink a tremendous amount. And I sit down and I just have this fucking plate. It's beautiful and it's brilliant. It's a tiny little spot, 30 seats. Oh, I, I want to go. I want to check that out. And it's perfect. Um, I, you know, I love... I, I have to say I like the uh, the roast pork sandwich more than the Philly cheesesteak. I see. I'm a, I'm a flip back and forth. It all depends. Like, but realize that I'm from Philly. So the other night I go out with a bunch of my buddies and we do cheesesteaks before dinner. <laughs> so you know we were going out to fucking dinner in Chinatown and we stopped at Steve's Prince of Steaks for cheesesteaks before we went to dinner. I, I've but been to Steve's. I'm a roast pork. I'm a roast pork guy across the board. Yeah, so I, mean, I love, I love John's most pork. Sweets, broccoli rob, and if you're really fucking lucky, ask Carl. I do a combination of Italian sausage in the middle of it. Oh, that's interesting. And I'm, ex and I'm in heaven. I go down. Every, you ready for this? I go down to my orthodontist, and every time I leave my orthodontist, I walk across the street. I walk into Reading Terminal Market. I get a fucking seat, usually right next to a cop sitting at, at, uh, at the next, and I get I a roast pork sandwich. Yeah, that's such a great sandwich. Yeah, and and the deli right next door to it, Herschel's, which makes an which which makes an amazing pastrami sandwich with their matzo ball soup. It's out of this world, and you just sit at the little deli, and it's brilliant. That market is to me, it's so untouched and unsullied, right? Like you know, there's just there's really nothing like that in New York. Uh, we have we have stores that have been here for like a hundred years, right? The, like a, an Italian cheese shop or something. But that whole collection of places, it's like, it just has never been gentrified, even though everything around it kind of has. Yeah. It's sort of, I, I just love eating in that, in that terminal market. When you can do anything, you can go in, you get your donuts, you get your barbecue, you get your cheesesteaks, you get your roasted turkey. Yeah, I mean, and there's the Amish markets that are inside of it as well, the Amish butchers. Right. And the you know, sausages and the cheese. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really special. Unbelievable. You know, and, and, and the lines that they just, that they generate at this point, even the produce store, I, I think it's Acabelli or Iovini or Iovini Brothers, whatever. You, you look at their produce that they're holding in the terminal market. And it's just beautiful. It's great stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's run by the family. It's and and uh, and the best. Part, I shot a TV show called called uh, Fanatic Food Fanatic, which was about great stadium foods and classic iconic uh, foods throughout the country. And and total Philly. I'm walking through Reading Terminal Market in the middle of lunch on like a Thursday, and I'm shooting, and I've got a camera guy in front of me five feet in front of me. I've got, you know, a producer standing next to him walking backwards and I'm doing a full blown walk and talk and not one, 
but two times people stop and stand in front of me while I'm talking. Yo, what are you shooting? <laughs> what are you got? Where's this going to be? Where am I going? You're that guy from Bar Rescue. What are you guys shooting here? What's go and like? It's just total Philly, and you just accept it, and you just walk on, and, and that's what I love. And we are. You nailed it. We're a third-rate city with a second with, that thinks we're a second-rate. But still, it's such, I mean, just places that, you know, on, I mean, I have to say I love that, even though I, I like the salt of the earth, the the old school, like Chubby's cheesesteaks and, the, the, you know, that I had that hundred, $120 cheesesteak from um, Stephen Starr's place. Oh yeah, at Butcher and, and it, What's it called? Uh, Barclay Prime. Oh, Barclay Prime. Yes, 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 I, yes. You know, I did one of my first meat shows in Philly. I did like a, a cheesesteak tour, and then I did a sh- an episode on that. And I was like, you know, my every instinct is like, this should not be good. It's just like it's like foie gras and wagyu and truffles, and it's like you know cheese. And it comes with champagne, and it costs like a hundred bucks. But man, I have to say, it was a pretty fucking good sandwich. We um, do. I do corned beef and cabbage cheesesteaks on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, that Sorry. sounds good. Which no, are pretty fucked. Not going to lie. It's no $120 cheesesteak. You're not getting right. champagne. Well, but I think there used to be a place in Philly called Kansas City Prime, which was my buddy Derek Davis. And he had, I think he had a $90 cheesesteak, but you could supersize it. <laughs> that came with like truffle fries, you know, that they would shave ounces of truffles on your fucking cheese or on your French fries. And I, I mean, you know, and, and he nailed it. You know, he got the one, he got the, the, the recognition for it, which is what everybody was doing during that, not that, that, that late nineties, early 2000 timeframe, get right. the print, get the picture, get on the front page. That's what we want. Yeah. I mean, and it's, he nailed. it's no different than today. It's just a different format, right? A different format, right, right. And also what you need, I guess, it's you need so much more these days. Uh, and it's never ending. You used to take a picture and put it out and wait for everybody to come in. And now, you know, I had a woman who came into the restaurant last night and she was pissed off. You know, we are, my short rib wasn't ready. I'm not going to lie. I smoke meats every single day. We're five, we, you know, I'm five days into this property. We're still figuring our smokers out. I'm still working the science because it's, it, every smoker is completely different. So she orders the short rib. My server thought we were ready. We didn't have it. I finally went out and said, hey, I really apologize. She said, this is the worst experience of my life. I can't believe it. <laughs> well, if that's and I the said, experience of your life, you've lived a fucking blessed well, life. Let me, let me paint the scenario for you. One woman sitting at a table with a bottle of red wine with two kids in front of her. Who is she? She's the new recently divorced mom. Right. She's pissed off. She let me know her boyfriend just broke up with her two weeks ago, right before her 40th birthday. Her ex-husband, her, her his, him and his new wife just bought a house down at the beach. She's pissed off. I get it. I understand that. And I looked at her and I said, next thing you're going to tell me is that you're going to put this on Yelp. <laughs> I am. And she said, well, I, you know, I, I think somebody, I said, no, I'm a barbecue house, man. I don't have servers. I'm a barbecue house. I smoke meats and we do it really well and we do it all day. I said, I have five areas where I can make money. Brisket, short rib, ribs, pork, and beef. That's what I got. And she said, you know what? Thank you very much. She was super cool. She ended up being super cool. I kind of loosened her up. But my first word that I said to her was, now you're going to tell me you're going to review me on Yelp. (laughs) And we stopped it right there, you know? But I don't know why I told that story. Well... (laughs) Why are we telling any of these stories, right? Know, because exactly. we, we're sort of 
we're discussing what is the modern state. I mean, it's it's weird that there's a radio show and podcast dedicated to talking about just food and about the food yeah. industry. But that's where we're at. I mean, it, it really has ascended to this cultural plane where chefs are are as recognizable as musicians and the sports stars. And in some cases, even more so. In some cases, even more so. And, and certainly contextually, when you walk into a restaurant, you you know, chefs sure. are... Right, so that's... It, it's... it's I, I mean, I think it's fantastic. It's I, dynamic it, change. Entire, yeah. When, when I walked into Home Depot and somebody stopped me in Home Depot. Look, I did this thing, The Meat Show, which was my last job with Eater. So just finishing, we're kind of wrapping up my career. Um, I wrote for Serious Eats for seven years and then I was with Eater, which is, and to me, those are the two sort of big food blogs that were purely digital, right? Obviously, the New York Times food section and New York Magazine, Grub Street and all these, you know, all these other websites. But those two were very early on, was sort of defined the, the digital food space. Um, Serious Eats initially was really a food blog that did restaurant reviews and they switched over very much to recipes now. Um, but then Eater was always this gossipy insider thing. And then when they got bought by Vox, they became much more of a food section, like a food magazine. So there was professional reviewers and that's when I came on board. Um, and they kind of pushed me into video and that's where, that's really how you know me is for the meat show, which is, yeah. and that is the weirdest experience because I went from being this sort of behind the scenes, toiling away, getting out posts and pictures about food. And, you know, having connections within the food scene and being known by chefs and stuff. But now it's like I get stopped every country I visit. And I was walking down the street in Japan and some guy tapped me on the shoulder. He goes, I love the meat show. And I'm just like, oh, geez. what's going on here? Like this is, yeah. you know. But so the meat show was my show with Eater. We did like over 100 episodes. And I am now launching and hopefully by the time this airs, we'll have our first episode up, my new show, which is called Meat Life. And it's basically the same thing. It's me going out into the world and finding unique meat experiences and telling you about them. And the first episode is actually, spoiler alert, it's the Smith & Walensky Prime Rib. And it's sort of like, it's something that I constantly refer back to because it's it's my gold standard for what I think something should be. Right. And, but, you know, I'm not saying necessarily go and get this, but I think what everyone should have in their life is a meal that, I don't want to be morbid about it, that it's your death row meal, but like, what do you, what is your ideal meal? What describes a celebratory experience for you? And to me, that's the Smith & Walensky problem. I'm constantly looking for something better than that to eat. And that's what meat life really is. It's me on this quest to find something better. So the first first uh, series is shot in New York, and we visit a bunch of my favorite restaurants here and nice. visit some of my favorite chefs. Um, the trailer is actually up on YouTube. You can uh, It's called Meat Life is the channel name. Okay. Uh, and, and you'll have my, my contact. You can just go to nicksolaris.com to, to find yeah. – to that. I was going to your website um, earlier. But so that that's, you know, that's where I am now. And it's, it's, it's amazing to see what the possibilities that the internet has given food and then the food gives the individual to sort of flourish in a way that's completely beyond. I mean, I went, you know, my training was, I went to, you know, I have a BA in history and I was, you know, I was in publishing before and owned businesses, but like, you know, 
15, 20 years ago, like for me to become a food writer would have been like, I would have had to start off at the bottom run of a print publication and hopefully the career you'll sort of be able to get your way through. There was no, you know, there was, or at least very little avenue for self-driven career because you were dependent on these large corporate entities who own the print publications. Yeah. Um, now you can start a food blog or, or an Instagram account or a Twitter account, right? And generate and grow an audience, right? And connect with that audience. And get paid to do it. Yeah. And look, you know, I, I a lot of food writers and people, you know, who, who sort of come up, came up during my era and before us, you know, they sort of grouse about internet influences, Instagram influences, right? But like they're being as disruptive as we were being 10 or 15 years ago, Right. They're just using the technology that they have now at their disposal in the same way that we use the technology that we had at our disposal. And that happened right. to be blogger, you know, of, I mean, I remember before, I remember the I remember before Twitter, right? That's, I remember when Twitter came along and have fundamentally changed the immediacy of the discourse. Because before, when we had blogs, we would post something on an hourly basis, but and the reaction would almost be like a news cycle, like 24 hours. Right. If you think about the way that things now, it's like a blog post, like an Instagram feed is so quick, right? But gets way more traffic just in that one post that we were getting back at the beginning days of food blogging, right? It's the immediacy of the interaction has just been shrunk down to this like almost you know, to the, to the micro level. Um, and, but it has fostered this incredible discourse, this incredible wealth of jobs and opportunities. Yeah. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword, of course, you know, you have Yelp, you have the lowest common denominator, you have the, the subservience of Instagram ability of the way something looks versus how it actually tastes. Right. Because yeah. to me, a Philly cheesesteak is not the most photogenic, rec- you know, Never. the most photogenic. And you know how you make it photogenic? By ruining it. You fucking take it apart. You stack it on top of itself. <laughs> what are you people doing? It's a fucking sandwich. Don't do that to it. It's perverse. <laughs> I'm going to send you a picture of one of my cheesesteaks that we didn't fuck up. And it's a beautiful picture. I it's a beautiful picture. I mean, right. I look... I'm a caramelized onion mushroom guy, but I roast the shit out of my mushrooms because I, 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 that's that to me is a great cheesesteak. And don't get me wrong, I love a Steve's. I did. I love that rawness of it, but for me, I like a mushroom in there, and I like a perfectly caramelized onion. Well, and here's the and other I'm thing: good. nobody, you know, for you to do a cheesesteak, you're not going to outclass outclassic the classics, right? Right. So you almost need to bring your vision of something into it. Yeah. as a chef, right? And that's that's where the value of a chef is, you know? Right. It, it, it's that they are bringing that. It's that, it, it's it's not just that they can make something delicious, it's like they can tell you why it's delicious and right. they can make it delicious in a different way, right? And that's that's what I, I think it goes unappreciated. Um, well, and I say, I mean, I, I, especially on Yelp, that goes unappreciated. Uh, I did a whole podcast a couple weeks ago called Fuck Yelp, so... <laughs> I did because I, I talk about it all the time that, that, you know, if you actually, if you actually cared about what it was that you were saying and rather than just trying to get a reaction, then you would tell me to my face, tell me yes. to my face and let me know what the problem is so that I can fix the problem. But if you put it on Yelp, Instagram, whatever it is that you had a shitty meal here, now I have to defend myself. Right. You know, last night, one, a woman said to me, 
your waiter was really good, but he seems to touch his hair a lot. Well, I need to have a conversation with him. I don't want him touching his hair in the dining room. I need to have a, you know, I need to have a conversation with that employee so I can do that rather than you going on to Yelp and writing, well, you know, it was okay, but the waiter touched his hair all night long. And also at that point, you don't know who the waiter is. Right. Exactly. Uh, there's, you know, I've got to address the stuff while I'm there. And I said to the woman, thank you so much for letting me know. I really appreciate that. I'll make sure that I address that right now. You know, and, and, and I joked around. I said, I'm going to go. I've got a pair of scissors in the kitchen. I'm going to go cut his hair. Like, we're good. Thanks for letting me know. Like, I'm going right. to fucking now my new rule is everybody shaves their head before they come to work. Fuck that. Well, look, nope. the thing about the Internet, it, it does, and especially something like Twitter or Yelp, it, it, it allows for anonymous outrage or, or at least outrage that is disconnected from a human interaction. So you're going to be a lot less kind to somebody about their restaurant experience if you're if you're at home or on, on your phone right. versus them standing in front of you, right? Yeah. And it's also, you know, I think that it does unfortunately play into the darker and more cynical aspects of human nature, right? Both Twitter and Yelp and, you know, now I think Instagram. I mean, I lo- look, I love those. I, I don't use Yelp at all. I've never used Yelp. Um, it's sort of anathema to what I consider important about food. And right. that's that's the nuance of food. And I think Yelp is very broad stroke. Look, I, I, can, I get it. I get it. You, It's a useful benchmark, for people, you know, and and maybe there's some of these Yelp elite reviewers, uh, Yelp elite reviewers. I can't even I can't even get the words out. There, so. I hate them that much. Well, I mean, it, it's look. I'm sure there's people that connect with those reviewers in a way that this, in the same way that they connect with me as a food writer and the, or or you know the New York Times critic or Adam Platt, the New York Magazine critic, right? But they're, the thing about they're getting, but the way that Yelp. Yeah, but the way that Yelp works generally and globally is that, and I, I also, I don't know this for a fact, so I don't want Yelp to sue me, but I understand there's some kind of way that you can sort of pay to get bad reviews taken off. I mean, sure. that's okay. the only way to get bad reviews taken off. Is so then that, that whole business model, me. It's in, the whole business model is implicitly corrupt from the get-go, right? Well, and the same with the, the, I mean, you're a Yelp leader. You're receiving something for writing reviews. Now, if it's my job, that's a different story. I'm a food critic. That is my job. That's what I do. I'm not a, 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 a yeah, daycare a nanny during the day. A food critic doesn't accept comps. Exactly. that. But, but you get paid to do a job. You're paid to write. You're not receiving something for free. Right. You're paying for your meal. It is a full experience as if you were a normal guest. It's not, I'm a Yelp leader. I'm having a Yelp elite party. So now come in and talk about my property. Right. Where I'm giving you something. You know, I just did I just did something for my place in North Carolina where I invited the top 10 uh, food writers, the top 10 food bloggers in, North Car- in, in Winston-Salem. I invited them in. I gave them a whole bunch of free food. I got free press. They did a great job. I had a great job doing it. They loved it. It was nice. We got a great boost from it. And that's what it was. I no, but, but that's, that's first of all transparent, right? Yes. It's, it, it's, and they all and, say and that. Look, there's going to be a big shakeup in the whole Instagram, um, the whole Instagram influencer, YouTube. Well, you have to, you have to now, you now have to let it be known that you're, you're in a paid partnership. Like exactly. all of my influencers, like I work with French fries. I have to say within the first, before the crease, which is the old school contract way of yep. newsprint that before the crease, I have to mention that this is a paid partnership. Right. 
And now that, look, you know who's going to crack down on this more than anyone? It's going to be the IRS <laughs> because they're realizing there's a whole bunch of revenue being uh, going oh, back yeah. and forth that is fully taxable, right? Even if yeah. you get a free meal at a restaurant, that's technically value, that's def- you know. Exactly. That's an income of some sort. Right. So, so look, that, the, the, the new age, look, I, I, I don't complain about people. And I don't – how can I have – 15 years ago, I was the guy disrupting the thing by blogging, right? When the old print guys were like, no, we are the, we are the authority here, right? <laughs> now, the old, now the digital guys that have been reviewing restaurants are like, who are these Instagram influencers? You know, well, they're, they're kind of the new school, right? They, and look, I'm not saying that there's it, – it's not necessarily the same thing. Food writing is a craft, right? It's something that you get better at. You, you work at it every day. And, right. An Instagram influencer is not a food writer or even a food blogger. They're they're the wrong thing. Like that's that that's broadcasting versus you know actual literary criticism of some kind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the two can coexist, and, and I think the two can can benefit each other, right? Um, so it's just a very interesting place that we're at, where you know that you and I are talking together, <laughs> talking across the internet about food. Right. You know, very different experiences growing up, but yet we're connected on these things and we and we connect on so many levels. And it's not surprising that we have so many mutual friends in common, even though we've we only just met for the first time, right? Right. Uh, exactly. It's, 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 I mean, it's, it's La Cubana. Fuck, dude. How and then the food that he was putting in front of me. Unbelievable. You, you know, do you know how did I tell you how we met he and I? No. He was driving down the New Jersey Turnpike saying that he was coming down to have lunch in Philly. And I was like, let me know where and I'll meet you. You see that again. And what was that over Twitter or something? That was over Twitter. Right. So that that's the thing that these tools, as much as people deride them and, you know, it's like that connects people. I mean, that's ultimately even though 99.999% of your interactions with these people will be purely online, it's that one time when you actually meet somebody in the real world that sort of justifies the whole thing. Sure. And if you hadn't done that with Carl, we wouldn't be on this podcast right now, right? Because I exactly. wouldn't have met you in the kitchen of La Cubana. Right. Although I do want to let you know that you are on my list. You were on my list of guests. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. Because I, I have a list of guests that we go through all the time. And I'm like, all right, let's go into – let's go here. Let's reach out to these people. And you've been on my list for, for a while. So that's why when I was sitting there, I was like, fuck, I know this dude. So, and I don't know if you lost weight. I don't know what it was. I did actually lose a lot of weight. Yeah, um, that's what it was. Yeah, exactly. But well, I, I didn't know you were as tatted as you, as you were. Oh, my tattoos are all from the eighties. I haven't been, like they are like old school, <laughs> school tattoos. Like Any my major- tattoos are older than most people who have tattoos. Not right. the tattoos, the people. Did I have my make tattoo scary hat on that day? That was so funny. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I remember when tattoos were scary. I remember when I used to walk down the street in New York. And people would look at you like you're a convict or a hell's angel. Yeah. And when you would see other people who had tattoos, like there was a real kinship and camaraderie there, right? Like you would, you had something in common. Now you have, you know, it's it's as common as Nikes, right? Like well, there's, a, there's a, a great meme that's out there. That's a it's like a double shot. It's the same exact shot and up top, it's a guy, you know, and they're writing on his forehead and writing on his neck and writing on his face with sharpies and all that stuff. And it says College Prank 2007. <laughs> and the it, it says Rapper 2017. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, when but the it, you know, did that happen? Right. Well, it's it's because it's funny how like. 
even back then, like you wouldn't get your hands or your face tattooed. Now that's almost like the first people get tattooed is their hands and their face. A shamrock <laughs> behind the ear with an ohm sign on it. Right, right. Or a kanji that they think means like peace, love, and understanding, <laughs> but it's like. Right? It's like Wartan soup with scallions. I had my father, my father, when I was younger, I had him write our last name in Gaelic. Nice. I had it tattooed on my leg and the tattoo guy fucked it up. So I have no idea what it ever said. And in reality, I don't even know if my father knew if it was the right writing of it. Well, but it's a prince. It's a thought that counts, yeah. right? I know. I just, I always <laughs> laughed about it. I, and oddly enough, I've had three tattoos removed. I'm 12 in now, but, and I'm continuing to go, but I had three removed of just like 18, you know, I was, I was a kid. I just didn't like them anymore. I got them right. removed. Um, well, and, I, and there's a lot of, my heart's like, oh, fuck that. I can't believe you've got him removed. There was a part of you. And I'm like, yeah, but it was a shamrock that was covering what, up. A was it, was it a really, right. Was it a part of you? I mean, the, it's it's all transitional, right? Although if you think about it in a weird way, like, you know, the we sort of, our, every cell in our body sort of regenerates over a seven-year period, right? So we're not actually the same physical person that we were seven years ago. We're just a a modification of that but the tattoo ink itself is a permanent thing i mean that that ink is not going anywhere so yeah. the body changes around it but the ink is is actually more permanent than anything yeah i like them i'm good i like the ones that i've got now so and actually i, I was i was telling you earlier i have one that i ha that i put on my arm it was one of the first ones that i got after i had these other little ones removed and it says the art of the preparation creates the experience and it's kind of the way that I try to live a lot of the stuff that I talk about. And, and it's what you were saying is as well. I mean, the preparation that goes into that product, like that prime rib from Smith and Walensky, that's creating that experience. Right. It's that ambiance of everything. The preparation that went into that shift creates the experience. That bartender's been there for 20 years. That's the preparation that he's created to give you that experience. And that's hospitality. And that's really, I that's guess, ultimately what I'm, it's not just, I'm not just into eating. I'm into hospitality and dining as this yeah. overarching experience. It's about everything. Look, I'm sure you remember back in the day, it was dinner and a show, right? Now yeah. dinner is the show. People are going to restaurants, you know, for that experience. When I ate at a, you know, Carbone, have you eaten at Carbone? No. Carbone is the major food group. That's Mario and Rich. Um, just two of the most talented chefs to come out of the last generation. Um, they have major food group. They own the grill, which is my favorite restaurant in New York. Uh, they also have Carbone, which is a, which is a classic old school red sauce joint like Ralph's in Philly or like really? Rayo's here. But you know, it's only a decade old at this point and like right. everything is done. Like, you know, they have a steak, but it's like, dry age USDA prime steak. The the veal is like from an Amish farm. It's all done like really well. And the waiters are all dressed up in like these maroon velvet tuxedos, right? Mm -hmm. That's so when it. I went there, there I, I went there, I put on a I put on a suit. I put on a black suit with a you know with a you know like pinstripe suit, like properly dressed up. Not too many other people were dressed up, frankly. And one of my I really wish that there was more dress codes in restaurants because you're part of the wallpaper of the experience. So if everyone's wearing a suit in a classic steakhouse, it really feels like a classic steakhouse. Absolutely. If everyone's dressed in Bermuda shorts and T-shirts, it feels like Disneyland. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm dressed up. In, I'm dressed up in this like suit, and the way he goes, "Oh, where are you going tonight?" I go, "I'm coming to dinner." He goes, "No, no, really, you're wearing a suit." I go, "I put on a suit to come to dinner. <laughs> like, why is that abnormal in this day and age? It shouldn't right. be." But you know, it is. at the same time. If the show, if you're only going to dinner, you may as well dress up for dinner. Yeah. 
Oh man. I, I, uh, all right. I think we got to cut, man. We yeah. No for an hour and 45 minutes. Oh shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll say less next time. No, don't. I want to go to part two. I've just got to get my children out of the house. Yeah, I actually have to, I have to go to a tasting right now. Doesn't that sound awful? Well, no. If it's another tasting like we had the other day. It's going to be. Are you kidding me with those fucking empanadas? Oh, man. How good were those? Did you see the pictures I took? I'm in the city. Yeah, the no, they're brilliant. I saw them. I saw they them. came out so well. Yeah, so uh, are we still recording or we're done? Yeah, no, we're recording. We, oh, we so don't have to, but we can. No, no, I was just saying that, uh, but we're talking about Carl's restaurant, like how, just the level of execution. Like Carl, like you, is a classically trained chef. Yeah. He just has this persona. Like you're, you're a salt of the earth working class guy. He is also that. Like that, yeah. you know, you guys have never forgot your roots, right? Yeah. So you bring this exacting attention to detail, but you're applying it to really like just classically, you know, classic old school food and Carl's making a Cuban restaurant. Which is kind of the analog of a barbecue restaurant, right? Or a cheesesteak sure. joint. Absolutely. I mean, it's it, it's it's vernacular cooking, right? Yeah. Ethnic vernacular cooking in his case, and but just the what he's bringing to empanadas, you know, to, to how about that jet fish, the, 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 the red snapper? Oh, the snapper was off the. What is the? What was that crust? Cornmeal. Fuck. He just dusted in cornmeal, which makes sense if you think about the way the Japanese do a lot of that. It's just a cornmeal right. dusting or, or right or a rice flour dusting. It just you're letting really the, you're letting the fat actually become the crust in that skin, right? And that's just sort of act, that crust is just bringing that little that textural crunch to the edge of it. It's really just a great technique. Well, I mean, you know, and on a different level from from chef to chef to hear him just be so excited about how he made his dough and the way that he was making the filling with the monster right, cheese. Right. It's like, like spending it the way that he was. And, and yeah, it's just exactly. the pride that he put in that and the, and the excitement of just that one dish was and great. Then, right. And then add on top of that, the grandmother aspect, you know, the whole, <laughs> the whole heritage thing. Like that's why, that's, that's why that restaurant is going to be so special. I think. Cause it's, it's, uh, it's not just that it's like the best Cuban food you're going to get. Yeah. It's also that there's so much history in, imbued in it. Right. And also for Carl, it really is like the next step in his life. You know, he had a really rough year with the divorce and, and <laughs> going losing his other restaurant and all of that stuff that, so now it's like this is like the next chapter in his life, but it's going to be like the reawakening of you know it's like the rebirth, and I think the food is going to be spectacular there. I just want to see opening night him in the Restaurant Depot customer jacket. Oh, I know, right? I, 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 I and I think he was like standing next to a woman or something, and it said victim number one or. <laughs> Like just the shit, or, or or I mean, I know we're, t we're you know the the video that he does where he watches the Home Shopping Network. Have you seen that? Priceless. He Have does a live fucking video, and he talks to, and he does shots and drinks beers and talks to the personalities. Karen, give me the doorbuster, Karen. Come on, Karen, you I can do it. Fucking, I just, I, I. Like Hilarious. the comedic value of the reality of what he's doing. Oh, well, that's the other thing. It's not just that he's an amazing chef. Like, he, yes. you just follow him on Instagram. Like, it's just a hilarious, you know, the guy, he's living a hashtag life. 
he absolutely is reason. That's it. <laughs> I have to, I, I've done Duffified for the last, I don't know, 10 years. And I'm like, he totally put my fucking Duffified to shame. Because the idea of Duffified was the idea of, of never saying no, experiencing life to its fullest. And now I'm using the hashtag Ruizing when I'm fucking going tar. I don't even use my own goddamn hashtag anymore. I use his. So, oh, fuck. Nick, dude, thank you so much, man. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. And, and my next run up to New York is uh, is going to be a phone call to you first and let well, you know. Well, listen, we'll do a food tour and we'll, maybe we'll do a live Instagram thing. We'll bring Carl along and we'll, you know. Yeah. We- they can oh my experience, God! Uh, the the, uh, the trail with uh, a true debauchery. Um, do me a favor. Last time, tell us who you are. And how we can. My get name is Nick Solaris. I am a, a food writer. You can follow me on Instagram at nicksolaris.com. That's n i c k s o l a r e s. You can find me at Nick Solaris. I'm sorry. That's it's at Nick Solaris for Instagram, and then www.nicksolaris.com for connections to my food writing and also my YouTube channel, which is launching soon. So please subscribe. Cheers, brother. Thanks so much. for Thank you so much. Cheers. Well, there you go, everybody. Nick Solaris. So, you know, the, the way that I came to kind of find Nick again was really just through, you know, I was searching, I was doing some research on some stuff and I, I, I try to, when I get involved in a concept or a restaurant, I try to do, Research. I really want to find out who, you know, about the product or the concept or whatever it is. So it's a constant uh, 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 kind of, uh, I can't even think of the world, inundating my brain with as much information, overloading my brain with as much information as possible so that I can um, be as knowledgeable as I can about something. So I was doing a state concept with somebody and I was doing a lot of research and that's how I came across Nick. So to follow somebody who has as much knowledge as he does about the product, about the method, the feed, the grain, how it's being raised is something that's really cool. And then to sit in a kitchen of, you know, you guys, if you guys aren't following him, follow, follow Nick or follow uh, uh, Carl on Instagram and, and you'll get an understanding of, of why that joy of, of the visitation was such a great thing for me when I went up to New York a couple of weeks ago and sat in that kitchen and, and, you know, Carl starts feeding me food. And next thing I know, Nick walks in and I look over and I'm like, man, this motherfucker looks so familiar. And I didn't know where or how I knew him, but that, but that was a cool thing. And then to have him on the show and be able to talk, I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. So, so that's what I got for everybody this week. It's pretty quick, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Nick Solaris, uh, you know, go and check out his new show. I've actually pulled it up over here on uh, Instagram. It's called um, Meat Life with Nick Solaris. So check out that sizzle by going over there and finding out, you know, what's going on in the world of meat and all that and what he does. Um, super great talent and very uh, informational as well. And and totally educational. So Nick, thanks so much for hopping on with me, man. I really do appreciate it. Um, other than that, that's what we got. Do me a favor, get over to iTunes and all that good stuff and give us some reviews, man. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know who, who you want to see on the show. If you want to do that, feel free to hop onto Twitter or Instagram and follow me at Chef Brian Duff. Um, got the new restaurant coming out. Um, it's called Ardmore Q. Give me a couple of weeks. We're getting it up and running. It's a total turnkey that I've taken over. We're in the process of readjusting and addressing and getting everybody up and ready and organized and all that good stuff. So give me a couple of weeks before we can uh, get you in and feed you and sit you down and show you the world of barbecue that I enjoy so much. Uh, so thanks, everybody. Do me a favor. Get out there and just be fucking nice to people, man. See you. Didn't get duffified enough? 
Follow Chef Brian Duffy on Facebook and on Twitter at Chef B-R-I-D-U-F-F. Look for the blue verified checkmark to get exclusive content and to see what's coming up on next week's show. This has been Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy on Radio Influence. Radio Influence strives to bring you excellence in podcasting. We work with personalities like TV chef Brian Duffy, radio personalities like Ian Beckles and DJ Eakin, news and political pundits like Vincent Hill, and independent journalists Frank and Tracy Beans, experts from the sports world like veteran football scout and coach Chris Landry, pro wrestling personality David Penzer, MMA experts Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan, and strength and conditioning coach Jeff Crushell. If you're looking for food, sports, music, entertainment, politics, no matter the topic, Radio Influence has something for everyone. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.